This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, this is Morgan Lee. I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Today, I have the honor of introducing my new co-host, someone whose voice may be slightly familiar if you listened to last week's episode, Mark Galley. Hey, Mark. Hey, good to be with you. I still don't feel like a co-host. I feel like an assistant host because <laughs> you have so much more experience. Even this morning, I was going to your office asking what I should and shouldn't. What I asking you what I should and shouldn't do. So. That's just the sign of a great leader, not being afraid to ask for help. (laughs) There you go. Anyway, Mark, today we are having the show to talk about the closure of Books and Culture magazine. And why don't you tell everyone who's going to be joining us to kind of tease that out and give our listeners some more information about that. Well, I was really glad that we could, uh, in addition to John Wilson, our Books and Culture editor, uh, get uh, Mark Knoll to come on board because Mark is, uh, most many people know him as the professor of history at Notre Dame University. He was at Wheaton before that. For better or for worse, he's known by many people for his uh, book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which he wrote in 1994, was Christianity Day Book of the Year. And I thought it was particularly important to have Mark on this show as a journal of the mind is closing. I'd like to hear what Mark has to think about that. Welcome, Mark. Yes, it's nice to be with you. You are uh, have been listed in Time Magazine as the twenty one of the twenty five most influential evangelicals in the world. And I, I don't know how true that is, but I know you were you were influential in my own life when I did graduate work for a brief time in history at UC Davis, and it was because of the work of people like you and George Marsden, which I'd read in seminary, that uh, gave me the in a sense uh, courage to step onto a very secular history department at UC Davis and just try to do history really well and really good. Sometimes it, it required doing it from an evangelical perspective and pushing back on other points of view. So you have been influential to at least one evangelical, that's for sure. Then John Wilson has been the editor of Books and Culture for 21 years, and there's really nothing else he's done in his life that's nearly as important or interesting. <laughs> so we're going to leave it at that. So welcome, John. Thank you. John has been a good colleague here for 21 years uh, in CT because he's one of the few baby boomers who are left. And every once in a while, when millennials like Morgan are going on and on about something, I'll walk into John's office and say, really? And John will roll his eyes with me and we'll just say, these young people today. John, is it true, though, that you had the first podcast here at CT? I'm not sure. We I did do a podcast for a while with Stan Guthrie that was a lot of fun. I don't know if it was the first. I think it was. I think it was. Books and Culture podcast. Well, if you'd like to find archives on that, maybe John will tweet some out later. All right. So before I get into what we're going to discuss at length today, just want to encourage everybody that if you like our podcast, Quick to Listen, you should subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. All of you guys that already get CT Magazine know that we think very carefully about the types of articles and discussions that we're trying to generate for the church and for culture at large. And so one big way to continue our attempts to get people to think critically about all different types of issues is by subscribing to our publication. Listeners of our podcast can get this magazine for $10 a year. If you would like to get that deal, it's orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen, and a year subscription gets you 10 award-winning print issues. So 
earlier this fall, Christianity Today announced that after the November-December 2016 issue of the bi-monthly review, Books and Culture, it would be the last one. There have been 128 issues over 21 years, and CT made the announcement that they would be ending this publication. Um, I'm just going to read to you a little bit about what CT's CEO said um, as part of this announcement. He said, publishing print in a digital age is hard. Publishing print that is thoughtful is even harder. As a result, all that red ink has sadly forced Christianity today to end the exceptional run of this outstanding Christian thought journal with this issue. Mark, Galley, you and I, it's normally the time where we give our gut check. So I'm just wondering if you can give us a sense of your 140 character take about how this announcement made you feel. Well, it wasn't, of course, uh, the announcement itself that was news to me because I was part of the executive cabinet that helped wrestle with books and culture for years now. So it's been a low-burning feeling of depression for a long time. Just a really sad chapter in our company's life. I think I a couple of years ago before I worked at CT, I would have felt sad, but in a sad way that you just feel when you see institutions that you've admired from afar. But John Wilson is actually a really good friend of mine in the office. And so I felt much more sad about it than I would have felt back before John and I did not talk about baseball every single day. <laughs> yeah, I'm wondering, John, if you might be able to give us a little bit more perspective about some of the feelings that Mark and I just talked about. Well, I would say, first of all, that I'm very glad Mark Knoll is with us because um, he hates to talk about himself and he doesn't like other people to talk about how wonderful he is. And uh, so I he'll have to forgive me for this, but I'm the only one who knows how much he did for books and culture over the years. One of the great pleasures of editing the magazine has been working with Mark, and so I'm really glad that he's with us. I think you pretty well covered it. I would say that from my point of view, the fact that um, books and culture came into existence was, if not miraculous, certainly improbable, and it was a conjunction of circumstances, maybe providence, that made that happen. And the fact that we existed for um, 21 years strikes me as quite wonderful. So I am very sad that the magazine isn't going to continue, but I'm also immensely grateful that we had a good run, and I'm looking forward to seeing what's happening next. Mark Nell, do you want to speak to some of what you did to help get this magazine off the ground? Well, it was, um, as John has said, a combination of circumstances. And I'll, I'll have to add that as a still mostly a Calvinist, I think everything's providential. So the end, the ending is providential as well as the starting. But uh, the starting was a real blessing. The ending's a real uh, downer. In the beginning, it was uh, Harold Myra at Christianity Today who uh, had wanted for a long time to do something that would be more reflective, uh, more concerning the world as a whole, in combination with Joel Carpenter, who was at the time the uh, director of religious programs at the Pew Charitable Trust. Joel had been a longtime avid reader of the Reform Journal, a monthly produced by Erdman's out of Grand Rapids that had, had recently closed in, I think, 1986 or 87. And he, he wanted to see if something else could happen. And, and the combination of, of Harold's interest from Christianity Today Harold Myra's interest in Christianity Today and, and Joel's ability to provide some startup funding uh, got books and culture off the ground. And then uh, I would be almost think uh, in uh, terms of a miracle, uh, Harold 
Myron, I believe David Neff said, well, we know this uh, book person out in Pasadena, who I think I'd read one review by in Christianity Today, and they said, he's, he, he's really good, and we should look at him for an editor. I was skeptical since, can anything good come out of California? <laughs> but it turned out to be a stroke of genius, and uh, we had the right person to do the right thing. John's singular ability in, a, in an age of polemics and partisanship and gotcha journalism was to, to uh, emphasize the, the long term, to be thoughtful rather than reactive, to try to um, bring insight rather than onslaught, and to do it with uh, younger writers, younger people interested in this kind of forum, as well as a lot of veterans. So well, I'm uh, actually quite depressed about the uh, state of the world as it's reflected in this closing. I, I'm also uh, very grateful for uh, the folks at Christianity Day and Harold Smith succeeding Harold Byra and, and for the many, many people who supported the magazine by their subscription and, and quite a few by their, their gifts. And, and then to uh, John for the sterling work that he carried out for so many years. So, John, I'll ask you, do you think Mark's writing of the scandal of the evangelical mind was an extra prompt to get books and culture off the ground that kind of prompted a Harold Myra and a Joel Carpenter to, we got to do something about this? Well, it was very timely that the Pew Grant um, was already uh, decided before Mark's book okay. appeared. So, um, but the circumstances that prompted him to write the book were well known. It was not uh, accidental, I think, that the book came out in 94 and the first issue appeared in 1995. Hey, Mark Knoll, I hate to say this, but I was four when your book came out. <laughs> Would you be able to to give our listeners a summary of the argument that you Well, you can read making? now, you know. I mean, you've had plenty of time to read it, but our listeners won't, so... The book uh, makes the argument that uh, the evangelical Christian tradition has a heritage of really uh, first-rate wrestling with Christianity in relationship to the to the world as a whole, but that this tradition decayed at the end of the 19th century and went into remission, uh, near collapse throughout the first half of the 20th century. And I, I tried to identify re reasons for that, uh, reasons for why Orthodox Christian faith of a Protestant evangelical variety was scarce on the ground in university life, scarce on the ground in major publications, scarce on the ground in setting agenda for a broader intellectual debate. But then there was a, a hopeful element, less of a hopeful element than I, that I originally intended, that since uh, the Second World War, there had been a number of positive developments pointing toward a better use of the mind by people in the evangelical cohort. And, and so the, the Scandal of the Evangelical Mind was a kind of depressing book, but it ended, tried to end on a relatively positive note. And then I was glad years later to, to add a, a, a longer positive footnote. What do you think were the factors that made books and culture viable in the 90s and 2000s? And what, were, what, what changed to make it less viable today? Intellectually and uh, in terms of a Christian uh, outlook on life in the world, the magazine's always been viable. Yeah, you're right about editorial viability. It's one of the irritations I've had as managing editor and then editor of Christianity Today as I'll go out to a conference and people say, oh, yeah, you work for CT. Yeah, that's good. Uh, oh, do you guys publish books and culture? Oh, I really love books and culture. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd roll my eyes. We produce books and culture. And then my wife, she'll never, she never hardly ever asks me to make sure to bring home the latest issue of CT, but make sure to bring home the latest <laughs> issue of books and culture. But, Dale, right from the start... It was always a need to make up a significant part of the budget 
and and on those terms, then financial viability uh, was beyond the reach of the magazine. That's absolutely true. And there was a meeting that Mark probably remembers. Um, I had only been in the office for a couple of weeks, but I had already been working on planning for the magazine out in California. And it was uh, it, this meeting took place in in July of 1994. We were talking about this magazine, which just had a name and what it would be like. And um, some of the people um, from CT who were excellent in terms of their knowledge of the publishing industry and so on, they weren't familiar with the genre of magazine that books and culture was part of. And and I tried very hard to make clear that with the exception of the New York Review of Books, which is actually profitable, um, and I listed a long uh, number of magazines, both magazines specifically in the review genre, but also magazines like First Things, and that the one thing that all these magazines had in common, most of them weren't Christian, some were, but the one thing they all had in common is that they depended on subsidy for their existence. And some of the people uh, who were part of CT at that time, because they were so capable in publishing and because at that time the magazine industry was very healthy, they were inclined to doubt what I was telling them. And they felt like if we did things the right way, that wouldn't happen. And possibly part of the reason they thought that was that even though we said the same words, their words meant something different than the words when I said them. <laughs> and so so surprisingly, there were some people, not Harold Myra, the, the CEO at the time, but there were some people who thought that books and culture was going to be sort of a culture wars vehicle, um, like 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 Chuck Colson, but a little more intellectual, you know. And I honestly think that if it had been like that, it would have been much more financially uh, viable. But that wasn't the intention from from the outset. And I'm very very grateful to Harold Myron and to some other people at CT who um, who understood that this was not the purpose of the magazine. But that meant. We weren't a movement magazine, and um, so to, so to do what we do, it's nothing unusual. It's nothing unique to a publication based in the evangelical world. I mean, the same thing is true again of of all kinds of uh, secular publications that do something similar to what we do. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar. Again, first things, which is on a bigger scale. Uh, you know, their their annual budget, of course, is much larger than ours, and they have all kinds of events in addition to the magazine. But without subsidy, they wouldn't exist. So we had substantial three-year grant from Pew, and that was renewed for another three years. In the, inter in the years since then, there have been occasional larger subsidies, nothing approaching the level of the Pew subsidy, but for three years, from 2000 to 2005, Baylor gave us $100,000 a year. Then when Robert Sloan was forced out, that ended. Um, we've had individuals who've been extremely uh, generous with their donations in helping us. We've had uh, a couple of years ago when we were faced with closing, um, in addition to individuals and some universities and seminaries that contributed a lot of people through Twitter, some of them, <laughs> uh, heard about what was happening and, uh, and, and contributed, and we were able to keep going. So there isn't anything, uh, in one sense, new about that. What, the one thing that's been the big change is 
something that's affected the publishing industry as a whole, and that is the increasing role of digital publishing. And at the same time, the parent company, CT, in this extremely volatile publishing environment, over a period of years, having to greatly reduce its staff, close or sell most of its magazines, and redefine itself in a new publishing environment. This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive, church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. Mark, no, I'm wondering, can you speak to the impact of losing a publication like Books and Culture that discusses ideas in the really thoughtful and critical way that it does for the evangelical world? I would probably say uh, three things and, and try to be unacademic and keep it short. But, but uh, first is a, uh, a voice that really does try to explore issues and figure things out rather than to leap into the uh, social and cultural, theological, political conflicts that, that mark our, our day. So it's not, in that sense, it's not a intellectually sexy magazine, but it's one that tries to be substantive. And I think the evangelical world needs as much of that substance as any other segment of the American population. The other two things I would say is that the absence of books and culture means that older, senior, in some cases, very well-respected scholars, thinkers who are Christians, now have one less outlet for efforts to reach beyond the academic sphere. So one of the great things of books and culture was the number of, of, of really uh, first-rate intellects who were willing to write for the magazine. I, you, had, you had an outlet for people who, would, who had a platform, but who maybe found it useful to have a, a vehicle to speak beyond the academy and be, be beyond their intellectual peers. Then the third thing that's missing is uh, encouragement for younger Christian thinkers, usually in the academic world, but not, not always in the academic world, to have an outlet to uh, be encouraged to look at issues calmly, reflexively, to have 1,400 words or 2,000 words or 2,500 words. He, he recruited dozens of these people. Uh, looking at the, the, the last issue of the magazine that I have, the, the uh, September-October issue, is a terrific article by a young anthropologist, Naomi Haynes. She, she has an opportunity as a young anthropologist, a young Christian anthropologist, to speak to a broader audience. And it, it's not as though we, we face a complete desert now, but it's certainly a bleaker landscape than it was before. One other thing that John has been very good at over the years, and that is welcoming writers who are not academics to submit things in areas that, that they have some expertise in. So he's even reached down to the bottom of the barrel and allowed me to write a, what, a couple, <laughs> couple books on football or baseball or 
uh, or whatever. But I've noticed that. And it, for a younger writer who wants to uh, try out his or her gifts, books and culture has been a great outlet to say, is this the world I want to write for? And uh, can I do it? And John's been very encouraging in terms of that. I think that a lot of what was in books and culture wasn't um, created by books and culture, but was reflecting some good things that were going on in the in the larger world. And one thing that I'm especially proud of is um, the range of voices that we had in the magazine, um, both in the sense of of uh, political perspectives. But but also um, the community they they represent, and so while certainly um, it's a magazine that is based in the evangelical world, we've had lots of writers who are writing from different perspectives. Um, the uh, Orthodox writer uh, Frederick Matthews Green, Jean Beth Gielstein, the late Jean Beth Gielstein, was a very valuable contributor, not only writing about subjects uh, close to her academic specialties, but also occasionally writing some really insightful pieces on movies. Um, the Catholic writer, and in every piece he's written for us, I think that he has uh, pledged his allegiance to uh, socialism, Gene McCarraher. Um, we've also had regular contributors who are atheists, and what they have in common is that they're contrarians. They're not like each other, except that they're contrarians. So I would, I would mention, for instance, in the issue that will be our last issue, uh, Bruce Kuklick, who Mark helped recruit for books and culture very early on, is a, a wonderfully wide-ranging historian. You never know what subject he's going to take up next. And he's an atheist, but an atheist who knows more about the history of American theology than than most pastors do. So that was not something that was created by books and culture. It was picking up on the fact that while we read a lot about polarization and people being divided into camps where they don't even talk to each other, there are actually a lot of people who, who don't see the world that way. They have their strong convictions. I mentioned Gene McCarraher, for instance. I mean, he's he's a man of very strong convictions. Uh, but He's very willing to take part in a conversation that includes people who see the world differently. And that's true of everyone who writes for the magazine, who has written for the magazine. And it's something I'm particularly proud of. Let's uh, get uh, talk about the closing a little bit, especially in light of uh, Mark's uh, classic book, a Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. When I read the book, I, rem I, I knew it was a good book when I found myself wholeheartedly cheering some sections and rolling my eyes at others <laughs> and questioning his thesis at times. But it was a very powerful book, very influential. I'm wondering, Mark, if you, if you see the closing of books and culture as a sign that your fundamental thesis may have been right all along. No, I, I don't think so, Mark. I, I, obviously, the, the closing of the magazine and arguments I was trying to make in that book are, are related. A number of factors have changed since the 80s, perhaps, one is has already been referred to as the digitization of the internet of, of cultural dissemination. There are any number of outlets now for people who want to uh, talk seriously about uh, Christian matters. Society of Christian Philosophers, for example, it has it is, uh, done splendidly. BioLogos, uh, uh, an organization trying to have uh, Orthodox Christian people not be afraid of scientific developments, including uh, experiments in evolution. I, I think it's been a, a terrific addition to the intellectual Christian landscape. 
So, so on, from one angle, I think things are much, much better. On the other side, I do think that some of the characteristics that I, I isolated in the, the book are still with us. So there is uh, populism that, that disparages careful intellectual work. There is a approach to the Bible that emphasizes proof texting and what the Bible means for me, as opposed to what it might mean for the church as a whole. There are uh, characteristics in the Christian population of, of the United States that, that work really strongly against using the mind in a positive way for Christian purposes. So I, in some ways, things are much, much better than they were uh, 40 years ago. In some ways, the, the, the broader Christian communities in the United States, I think, have some of the same uh, systemic issues that uh, we, we did then and uh, the, the, po the population as a whole. So the, so the, the, the current uh, political campaign, uh, people have focused on evan what evangelicals want to do or don't want to do, but American evangelicals are part of America. And there, there's some huge problems in the uncommon intellectual day-to-day -day existence of the American population as a whole. And the evangelical segment of the population is not exempt from those huge problems. Uh, in addition to the populism, it's probably part of populism is activism. And we're seeing, uh, certainly among the evangelicals that uh, tend to subscribe and read Christianity Today, there's a very strong social activist dimension that's been around now. This has been rising for the last 20, 10 to 20 years. And there is an implicit, sometimes in that world, there is an implicit anti-intellectualism in the sense of if you try to understand an issue, a complex issue like race or environment or immigration, in a little more complex and nuanced ways, the activists will get very impatient with you and just say you're using the mind to avoid making a commitment to the to the cause of the cause of the hour. So I do think the our activism it's it's one of those paradoxes of evangelicals. Of activism is one of our strengths, but also one of our weaknesses. Mark Alley wrote an editorial for the latest issue of Christianity Today that urges people to subscribe to publications for the common good. I just want to wrap this conversation asking everyone, what do you think it will take to convince people to pay for the institutions that they appreciate and enjoy? I mean, you should really have Wendy in the conversation because... Wendy is his wife. Yeah. She would tell you that I've never had any trouble. <laughs> investing in those things and <laughs> buying books and subscribing to magazines. And she probably wished I was a little bit less committed to that. But it's not everybody's cup of tea. Not everybody is, is interested in, in this world that we're so interested in. And I understand that. And at the same time, I was a bit baffled by some of the responses I got from people when when Books and Culture, the, the news came out and they were saying, we had no idea, you know, how could this happen? <laughs> so it's not really rocket science. I mean, if you're interested in something, you can read a lot of things you don't subscribe to. That's what libraries are for. And I, I we go to the Wheaton Public Library at least three times a week, you know, and I, I get a lot of magazines that, at the library, in addition to the ones that I get at work and I get at home, you can subscribe to all those. Um, but you have to, if you care about them, you have to subscribe to some of them. You have to pay. And to be very honest, what a magazine costs, you know, when, when you consider what people pay, you know, when they go to Starbucks or McDonald's or whatever, what a magazine costs is is really not that much. But, you know, you could spend that money somewhere else. And if if it's not important to you, you won't support it. My hope is that at least a few people will uh, regret 
when they realize that there's no more books and culture coming in and will say that 1997 or 2495 or whatever it is I uh, uh, invested a year should probably go somewhere else. I am biased on this, of course. I've been in the world of journalism for 26 years, and I, I've just regarding Christianity today, I think we've underpriced the quality of our product. You pretty much have to to stay competitive nowadays. But I hear two complaints about people who say I don't, I, I don't subscribe to magazines. One is I don't, I don't have the money, which is like I just roll my eyes at that. That's just crazy talk. That's like, I mean, this week alone, I was too lazy to get up and make myself my own breakfast, so I went to a restaurant. Both those days, the the, the bill for both of those would have easily paid for a subscription to Christ, uh, books and culture. And I, we all do that regularly. We go spend twenty, thirty dollars at a pop without thinking, and you can get a magazine uh, of fine quality for that. So the money is not the issue. The issue, one issue, of course, is people complain about time. They don't have time to read anymore. And what they're really saying is that they are not allocating their time to read deeply because you can get all this stuff online, and some there are some long, thoughtful pieces online, but. They don't. They they just don't compare to in certain terms of the kind of the depth and, and quality you get from you get from a print publication because any print publication goes through a lot more hoops in order for it to get published before it ever gets published so that the quality is much better. You pay for what you get. So I'm going to say the most scathing and uncharitable thing I can. I think people <laughs> who don't subscribe to magazines are intellectually lazy and cheap. So there you go. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> I, I think it's also a, a tragedy of the commons type of effect where you just hope that someone else is paying for it. If you're not paying for it, well, hopefully there's a bunch of other subscribers there to to pick you up. Yeah, I will admit I'm I'm the type of person who has, upon occasion found that an article's behind a paywall, but I know Ted Olson, our director of editorial development, and he knows ways to get around paywalls. And once in a while, I've done that. And I've realized that's complete, that's complete hypocrisy <laughs> if I really do believe in the value of journalism. I, I also think, too, just the fact that articles are unbundled these days and that you read so much stuff divorced from even visiting the homepage of a website, much less reading the actual print publication, that you don't necessarily feel that you owe that institution the same amount that you would if the only way that you could read it was to buy the magazine itself. There's something about digital that I would say almost cheapens it in some way, at least mentally. I think Morgan's made a really good point. I will testify that I thought the idea of interviewing authors was a bad idea right from the get-go. But because I enjoyed so many other articles in books and culture, I occasionally, in fact always, read the interviews, and you know, you really could learn a lot from those interviews. I also opposed the idea of movie reviews, but I was a convert. I would have never chosen to read a movie review in a magazine if it was by itself digitally. Because it was bundled with things I was interested in, it was a painless exercise to, to, exercise, to, to do just a little bit of reading and I was then snagged and did a lot of reading. Well, thank you, everyone, for contributing. I want to just end it on a personal high note. I have decided that for all future birthdays and Christmas presents, I'm giving people subscriptions to publications. Amen. And I did three last month. All right. Now is the time of the show. We call it Precious Moments. It's where everyone takes some time to share with our listeners what they're feeling happy about or what's bringing them joy this week and also where they can be followed online. John Wilson. One thing that makes me happy is that all these years um, I get books sent to me to to review, to look at, and 
I hope that will continue to some extent because I hope to be doing some bookish things. And so today, I, among other things, I got a copy of a book called Max Beckman in New York, which is a, a book about a painter and his work he did in New York that I've been really looking forward to. And I can hardly wait to get home to look at it. So that made me very happy. Where can people follow you online? Um, well, I'm on Twitter um, at uh, jwilson1812. That's a good place. Mark Knoll? I've been encouraged by uh, activities at our own church, which is the, called the Church of the Savior, CRC, for a Christian Reformed Church. Uh, the church has had some ups and some ups and downs in, in recent years, but it's facing these issues and, and moving ahead and in, in matters related to the magazine, uh, the, the church has been a, a good place to have occasional uh, efforts to look at items in society, uh, items in politics, items in, in, in uh, science, where uh, the church is a community. So people that know a lot, people that don't know a lot, have been able to get together. We've had several events like that this fall. Are you on Twitter? No, I'm not on Twitter or Facebook or any of those sorts of he's, things. He's busy writing those wonderful books that we're so thankful for. Guys, check out his Amazon page. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Mark Alley. The Precious Moment is going to happen tonight. We're having an Oktoberfest party at my home. I need to reveal to home viewers, viewers before it becomes uh, an item of scandal, reported by an investigative reporter that the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today is a home brewer. So I've prepared uh, an IPA, a, uh, an Oktoberfest beer, a porter, I mean a, a stout, and a session beer for my colleagues here at work, and we're going to enjoy some somewhat German food and some beer tonight and celebrate the 60th anniversary of Christianity today. I don't do Twitter either. I don't do Facebook, but I do do a newsletter called The Galley Report. So if you went to christianitytoday.com slash galley report, that can help you figure out how to subscribe. So my precious moment this week is announcing that Christianity Today has a new podcast, and it is called Monday Morning Preacher. The host is Matt Woodley, who is preaching today's editor, and he offers listeners tips on using illustrations in your sermons. So the first episode is called The Ladder of Abstraction, and I highly suggest that you go on iTunes and check that podcast out. So that is it for this week. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into the show. This show is produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, any other thing. I've noticed sometimes in the stats that there's other podcast apps that I've never even heard of before. You guys do you guys. If you like the show, please make sure to rate us or review us on iTunes, though, even if that's not where you get your podcast from, because that really helps us a lot. And we will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.